is, it is well with my soul. But it doesn't always feel that way, does it? Can you remember the last time you experienced the end of the world? I mean, it sounds silly, right? If the world ended, we really wouldn't be having service this morning. But I think you know what I'm talking about. Maybe it was a broken relationship. Maybe it was a surprise job loss. Maybe it was a loss of a home. Maybe it was sudden loss of a loved one. You don't go through this life without experiencing some real game changers. And sometimes they hit so hard, it seems like it surely must be the end of the world. You must imagine that the northern kingdom of Israel felt that way after they heard what Amos had said in the first four chapters of the book of Amos. They've been told that the covenant land that they cherish is about to become a memory to them. That what they have to face in the future is war and captivity. The practice of injustice and phony religion has placed them under the judgment of God. That is not how it should have been. They were the Old Testament covenant people of God. He gave them the covenant promises. He set for them some covenant boundaries too, though. Inside those boundaries, there was peace and there was joy. But when they, they violated those boundaries, there was curse and judgment. And what a blessing it was. I mean, the covenant blessing promised to Israel was safety and prosperity in the promised land, in the presence of God, under his loving care. Joy. But they had violated the boundaries. They'd ignored his commands. They practiced false worship. They mistreated their brothers in the land. And so as we read in chapter 4, God was coming to them coming to them as a loving father who would discipline his children. And he had done that before. He'd come to them over and over, we saw in chapter 4, and disciplined them, but it said over and over, they did not return to him. So the days of the covenant blessing in the land are over. Invading army, exile. That's what they've got to look forward to. It's the end of the world as they know it. And then comes chapter 5. I'm going to ask if you would stand in, in, in honor of God's Word as we read Amos chapter 5. And I'll just be going through verse 17. And these are the words that, that Amos wrote inspired by God. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, The city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth." He who made the Pleiades and Orion, 
and turns deep darkness into morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that the destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas! They shall call the farmers to mourning, and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation, and in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Father, this is your word, and we ask that you would use it this morning, in us, that you would make its meaning clear to us, that, that you would write its truth on our heart and our mind, that we might be your people. Lord, may, may your Spirit do a work here this morning through the Word that your Spirit inspired. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So, what can under judgment Israel actually do in this situation? I mean, judgment's coming. What can they do when the hand of God is against them? What can we do if we find ourselves in a place of judgment? What can we do if the hand of God is against us? Well, Amos 5 shows us how God's people must respond when they are under God's judgment. Shows us how God's people must respond when they're under God's judgment. And to begin with and end with, really, when the people of God are under His judgment, they must lament. They must lament. The bookends of our passage today are all about lament. They show us that when the community of the people of God finds themselves under the judgment of God, they must lament. Those first three verses, Amos says, Hear the word I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. It's a lamentation. That is, that is, that is a, a, a group of words that express Grief. Amos the, the prophet is taking the role of the mourner for the people of Israel. 
Amos sees what is coming to his covenant cousins in the north, and, and he grieves. He describes Israel as a young maiden, and he's not saying that she is innocent. He's saying that she is vulnerable and about to suffer. Her world is coming to an end. She is left all alone. She is left forsaken with no one to help. And the reason is because by the word of the Lord, her armies will be utterly defeated. 90% losses, casualty lists. The section begins with Amos lamenting that the people of Israel are, are left utterly vulnerable and helpless with nobody to rescue them. So he weeps. And then we skip down to the other end, the, the bookends of the passage, verses 16 and 17, where, where the Lord again speaks. It says, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Amos is not to be the only one weeping in Israel. There is going to be wailing in the streets of Israel. The farmers will have, have, be enlisted to join the professional mourners who are brought in to weep. Get in the farmers. There's, there's no reason to, to graze crops because the, the farms are just filled with weeping because the farms have been destroyed. Just everyone should be weeping and lamenting because God is coming to judge. And in the midst of that, we have a little phrase, alas, alas. Some alasses. It's like in Shakespeare's Hamlet, right? because you all know Hamlet. I mean, Hamlet's got quite a story. Hamlet's love of his life, Ophelia, has committed suicide. And, and Hamlet and Horatio are walking through the graveyard, and, and they see gravediggers digging the grave for Ophelia. And they, they've dug up some other graves, and, and the gravediggers are telling jokes about the skulls that they've just dug up. I mean, gravediggers, what are you going to do? And... and, 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 and Hamlet and Horatio come over and the gravediggers start talking about this one skull that they dug up that's 23 years old. It was the skull of the court jester Yorick. And you know Hamlet's words, at least part of them, right? Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio, a fellow of infinite jest, of most excellent fancy. He hath borne me on his back a thousand times, and now how aboard in my imagination is it? Hamlet is saying, alas, because he looks at this skull and he remembers it was joy for Yorick at one time and now well, there isn't much you can do for him. Alas. And it's all too painful. Hamlet is weeping. You see, Israel is in a Yorick situation. And so the first thing they need to do is lament. They need to grieve what their sin has brought them. When the people of God are under His judgment, they need to lament. You know, I, I'm afraid that sometimes we relate too well to the British and their, their stiff upper lip philosophy. Or maybe it's a little ancient stoicism. Nothing emotional will touch us. Or maybe it is the simple fear of being vulnerable. But whatever the case... I think we have to admit that we, as the people of God, are a whole lot better at sinning than we are at weeping when our sin is revealed in judgment. I mean, if you wonder, is that true? Are we really better at sinning than weeping? Let me just ask, how many times did you sin last week? 
And how many times did you actually grieve over your sin? Aren't we much better at just moving on than actually lamenting? I mean, when we actually do grieve, what do we grieve? We grieve for the judgment, not for the fact that we've offended God. We do not actually lament. When was the last time any of us lamented the fact that we lost the joy of the Lord because we were in rebellion against Him? Well, when the people of God are under His judgment, they need to lament. We need to weep. When the people of God are under His judgment, they need to lament. And when the people of God are under His judgment, they must seek God in truth. We must seek God in truth. If we look there at at verses 4 and 5, the Lord again speaking to the house of Israel. He says, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. He He says, Seek me and live. Israel has gone after something else. They are seeking something else. They have sought wealth, even when it hurt their neighbors. They have sought luxury while their neighbors were starving. They have sought religious comfort while ignoring God's actual religious demands. So Israel as a nation, because they sought something other than God, they are going to go into exile and be enslaved at the hands of the Assyrians. That's going to happen But folks, exile's not death. Exile's not death. It's not eternal punishment either. And so God says to them, even though they'll be taken into exile, seek me and live. The remnant that survives and goes into exile from the land of the blessing, that remnant still has time to seek the Lord and live. Just because they're losing the covenant blessings in the land does not mean that eternity is finished for them. They they still have time to seek the Lord and live. And they're commanded to do it. God says, do it. Seek me and live. But seeking God can only be done in truth. It can only be done in truth. But God, God makes it really clear how they're not to seek Him, right? It will do no good to seek him in Bethel. The religion at Bethel was not designed or sanctified by God. It's going to do no good to seek him there. Don't seek him in Gilgal. Because the religion in Gilgal was was not designed or sanctified by God. So don't seek him there. It'll do no good to seek him in Beersheba. Because the the religious shrine at Beersheba was, was no place God told them to seek him. It will do no good to seek him there. In fact, he says those centers, they will be taken into exile. They will be destroyed. In other words, that your, your false religion is doomed. Don't seek me in the lie and think you can live. Don't seek me in the lie and think you can live. Seek me in the truth. What about our day? Contrary to what many believe in our day, it's not that any religion will do you when you find yourself in trouble because of your sin. It is a lie that says all religions lead home to God. God tells Israel running to phony religious centers is going to do you no good. 
That's what's being judged. The lie is being judged. Run to the truth. Find the true God where he may be found. The only religion that will, will do Israel any good now is the religion of truth. They have to admit the truth about their sin. That what they've been doing is rebellion against God. They must cry out to the true God in lament. Not the one they made up in, that's got statues and stuff in, in Gilgal and Bethel. They've got to seek mercy from the true God. He's the only one that can show mercy. And they must pursue true righteousness. Now, this will not be easy for them, right? They're going to be exiles. They're going to be taken into a foreign land. They will have no access to Jerusalem, no access to the temple. They'll be pulled along in the direction of false gods. When Assyria gets them to Assyria, they're going to say, you're in Assyria, you worship Assyrian gods. When in Rome, you know, they, they, they're going to be despised. They'll be despised by their own people who are still in sin if they go after the one true God. They're going to have to work hard in exile to seek the Lord and live. But the time has come to do it. While there is still breath, they still have time to do it. He's not in the doomed cities of the temple of Israel. They need to seek him in truth. And friends, phony religion is no more helpful in seeking God today than it was for Israel. A religion that offers health, wealth, and your best life now is not the religion of the Bible. The Bible that says in this world you will have tribulations. So don't seek God there. A religion that offers you hope for a cleanup after you die. That somehow you can be made with God right, right with God later. Ignores the Bible that says it is appointed for a man to die once and then the judgment. So don't seek God in that lie. A religion that offers only social programs is not the religion of the Bible where it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto me, comes to the Father but by me. So don't seek God in a religion that offers nothing but social programs. A religion that demands good behavior as though your good behavior could somehow get you right with God is not the God, is not the religion of the Bible that says there's none righteous, no, not one, and describes your righteousness as filthy rags. So don't seek God there. When it comes to, to seeking the Lord so that you may live, seek Him as He may be found in His Word in Jesus Christ alone. In truth. When the people of God are under his judgment, they need to lament and seek God in truth. And when the people of God are under his judgment, they must face the music. They, they must face the music. Because again, in, in verse 6, Israel's told, seek the Lord and live. I mean, if they do not, they face worse than exile. They face the devouring fire of God's just wrath. Exile is bad. Utter destruction under the hands of the Almighty God is worse. And then in verse 12, God reiterates the sinfulness of their sin and the greatness of the God they have sinned against. In verse 7, we see their sin. Instead of offering others sweet justice, they offered them bitter wormwood. They take heavenly righteousness and they replace it with worldliness. In Israel, this would have been the sin of the politically powerful and rich. But what is it in our day? 
In our day, we can all join in this kind of sin, can't we? Whenever the favorite cause of the people of God is the prosperity of the people of God, do we not join in this very kind of sin? We seek laws that favor our prosperity instead of just laws. We elect leaders who offer us stuff instead of leaders who offer us justice. We start to redefine what is right and good based on the terms of what makes us live an easier life. So that was their sin and it could be ours. Verses 8 and 9. Look at the God they sinned against. They, they offended the God who placed the stars in heaven, the God who separated day from night, the God who created the oceans, and the God who brings down even the strongest of men. And let me just say here, the fear of the Lord was obviously a necessity in Israel. It's a necessity for us. Our God has shown us great love and mercy in sending Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. But He is still God. He is still holy. He is still just. His might and His power remain unlimited. He desires righteousness as He has always desired righteousness. And we do well to remember who our God is. And then we get back to their sin in verses 10 through 12. I mean, look at it. They hate honest judges. They trample the poor with excessive taxes. They take bribes. And they stand as enemies of the good and needy. He's just reiterating what he said in verse 7. And think about it again, thinking about us. I mean, we live in a land where we have a say at the ballot box regarding who sits over the court, who writes tax laws, and who sits in the positions of power. Now, if you're like me, what you do at the ballot box doesn't always win. Right? I mean, it's a good thing I'm not a gambler if my votes are any indication. But we do well to take these verses to heart when we decide how to cast our vote. We, don't, we, we, we vote for, for the honest judges, not those who trample the poor, take bribes, or stand as enemy of good. And then look at the, the rest of verse 11b, the second part there. The result of their sin against such a God. They've built some pretty fancy homes. They're not going to get to live in them. They, they've, they've built these great vineyards and they've made this wonderful wine. They're not going to get to drink it. They've worked hard to get ahead. They stepped on the little guy on the way up the ladder. Now that they're at the top of the ladder, they're about to get knocked off. God will not allow people to drag his name through the dirt by, by calling themselves his people while they sin. Not ancient Israel, his beloved, or the people of God called the church today. So what should they do? Look at verse 13. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it's an evil time. God's judgment is coming upon them, and it is not time for them to try to stand up to God and say, God, it's not fair, we're good people. It's not time for them to stand before God and say, God, God, but, but we're, the, we're the people with the right DNA. We're the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not time for them to try to say, look, what if we do good tomorrow, God? Surely that'll cover it up. No, it's time for them to shut up and remain silent. It's time for them to face the music. 
And the people of God are under His judgment. They have to do that. They've got to face the music. When we find ourselves as the people of God suffering under His discipline, it is not time to try to find a loophole in the Word of God that will let you wriggle out of the suffering. It is not time to try to negotiate a settlement with God. I mean, you ever been there? God, if you'll just make things better, I'll do this. It's not time to pretend negotiate a settlement. It's not time to pretend that you're dealing with the consequences of your sin, but it isn't really your sin, it's just your consequences. In other words, you're saying, Lord, Lord, I, I, I kind of, I'm sinning, yeah, okay, and I'm suffering, but it's probably just circumstance. It is time to accept the consequences of your sin and the judgment of God and confess that that is what you're going through. When the Lord brings His discipline, a a true follower of Christ accepts the discipline that comes at the hand of God. You know, today, celebrity Christians, musicians, denominational leaders, megachurch pastors, they seem to be being caught misusing their celebrity to commit sin over and over and over again we hear about it. I, I read about another one just recently. And, and Amos makes it clear here. Amos makes it clear it is time for us to quit pretending, I think, that celebrity and Christian belong in the same thought process. Because when we make celebrities of them, it seems that the first thing they do is try to use that celebrity to hide some sin. The second thing to do is to make sure we don't imitate those people that we've put up on that podium. Because if we imitate them in their celebrity, why do we think we would not imitate them in trying to cover up our sin? Friends, when... When sin comes and knocks the celebrity off the pedestal, one year with a mentor does not make it all go away. You don't work out with your publisher or your conference scheduler a downtime so that people can forget and you can get back on the horse again. And that's what we're seeing over and over and over and over When the people of God are under His judgment, they accept His discipline and they face the music. They lament, they seek God in truth, and they face the music. And when the people of God are under His judgment, they must repent. They must repent. Look at verses 14 and 15. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord... The God of hosts will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. It is not enough just to accept the painful discipline that comes from the hand of God our Father. God's people must let the sorrow that comes through the suffering in judgment drive them to repentance. Amos makes that clear in verse 14. They they have always stood ready to declare, I mean, look at that, as you have said. The Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have said. They've always said, we're the people of God. God is with us. He says, well, actually, that'll only happen if you seek good and not evil that you may live. 
They said, we're Israel. We're descendants of the sons of Jacob. He says, no, you, you've been evil. You need to turn, change directions, and seek good. What he's saying there in verse 14 and then in 15, he's saying, if the folks who survived this wave of discipline, if the remnant, if they want Yahweh, the God of armies, to be gracious to them, to show them that undeserved mercy and grace, they need to quit going after evil and start going after good. He's been saying, seek me and live, seek me and live, and now he says, here's what that search is going to look like. Here's how you seek me. You hate evil and you love good. So first of all, it's got to be a change of heart, right? I mean, yeah, seek good and not evil, but that's going to start when you hate evil and love good. And you're going to have to establish justice in the gate. The gate was Israel's courtroom. It's where people brought their, their lawsuit type things. And if you're a geopolitical people of God like Israel, your politics matter a lot, right? Your politics are very much under God. Your court system is a religious court system. So your courts need to be just because God is just. And so he says, if you really hate evil and love good, it's going to show in your court. But it's really going to show in your heart. That's where it'll show that you hate it and you love it. Quit letting greed and the pursuit of stuff be your love. Quit letting that be your love. Do good. Care more about those who are before you who have needs than you do getting stuff. And there's a word for all that. It's called repentance. It's when you turn away from chasing after sin and the things of the flesh, and you turn after the Lord and His righteousness. When the people of God are under his judgment, they must repent because God is still God. And that means it's true today. You know, we, we aren't a geopolitical people of God. You know, God did not give commandments on how to design America, right? The, the Gospels changed all that. 1 Peter 2 9 says that anyone who comes to Christ, through faith, becomes part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So we don't read Amos and apply it to America, except maybe those first few judgment on the nation passages. We don't read Amos and apply it to America. We don't read Amos and apply it to racial groups, necessarily. When we read Amos, we apply it either to the church as a whole, the church worldwide, or maybe the church in America, or maybe we would apply it to the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention, or maybe we would apply it to Thompson Town Baptist Church. And when the church in any of those contexts suffers beyond the normal suffering that comes with life in a fallen world, it is a good time for those churches or that church to ask a very simple question. Are we suffering because of our sin? Did our sin put us here? And if the answer is yes, then that church or those churches need to repent. They need to let the loving but painful discipline of God 
that brings them to sorrow also bring them to repentance. You know, it has been really painful to be part of the Southern Baptist Convention as we've dealt with way too many revelations of covered up sexual harassment and abuse over the last few years. I mean, it has hurt. Because I love the good things we do as a convention. I love Send Relief. I love the International Mission Board. I love our church planners. But that has been painful. But there has been good. It has been good to see the integrity of brothers and sisters in Christ who came to the floor of a convention business meeting, which is just like our business meetings, except a few thousand people in attendance, and stepped to the microphone and said, Brothers, this must not be. And held leadership's feet to the fire until somebody did it. It was good to see the messengers of that convention to vote and say, Yes, we agree. This must not be. And it's been good to hear in Instead of words or, or cover-up or minimization, words of sorrow-filled repentance followed by actions that are trying to bring justice in situations where there was no justice. Repentance, brothers and sisters, is beautiful. And we don't always think that way, do we? We think repentance is horrible. I mean, I don't want to be in repentance because repentance hurts. Repentance is when I actually see that I'm suffering because of my sin and I turn to God and I have to just beg Him for mercy. I can't fix it myself. I've got to just beg Him for mercy. And we think, that's horrible. I don't want to do that. That's so wrong. Repentance is a gift from God. It's Him not letting you stay in the misery of sin and rebellion, but using His gracious discipline to bring you to the place where you hate evil and love good again. Brothers and sisters, it is time for us, maybe it's time for us as Thompson Town Baptist Church to look hard at who we are and where we are as a church and to be honest with ourselves. And if we find sin there, Come to God together, be ready to weep, be ready to repent, and we're ready to start hating evil and loving good again. Because repentance is beautiful. When the people of God are under His judgment, they must lament, seek God in truth, face the music, and repent. Now I want to close this sermon by making sure that in all of this we remember that we're on the other side of the cross from Amos. I want to remember Jesus this morning. Because the great news is that we are in a new covenant. A new covenant that was written by Christ on the cross. A new covenant that was sealed as He walked out of the grave on the third day. For the great news of the new covenant that, that we are part of in Christ is this. As we see our sin and suffer for our sin, we have the true word of God to which we can turn. And in that word, we find this. 
Our Savior stands ready to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness because he took our sin on that cross. Because he who knew no sin, he had none of his own, became sin for us that we might in the eyes of God become the righteousness of God in him. I mean, is that not good news? That when, when the Lord uses His judgment and discipline upon us in this life to bring us low because of our sin, we can run to the cross of Jesus and be forgiven. We can be forgiven. Do you, do you know what it means to be forgiven? To be forgiven means that when God looks at you, He holds none of your sin against you. It means through all eternity, God will never look at you as the one who did that sin. He will always look at you and see the righteousness of His Son. He won't hold that sin against you. There will be consequences of sin in this life. And hopefully they will bring you to repentance. But when you do repent, you will be forgiven and He will not hold you guilty anymore. And praise God, from that place we can move forward and follow Jesus. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, it is my prayer this morning that where there is sin in this place, that You would be gracious to us and bring discipline that would bring sorrow and repentance so that You might forgive. God, do not let us enjoy sin. Do not let us enjoy rebellion against You. But do your work in us to turn us back to Christ. Help us seek you and live. Father, for the one who came here this morning without faith in Christ, I pray that today would be the day that they say, I recognize my sin and what it deserves, and I today trust that Jesus took my sin, that I am rescued, that I am saved, that I am forgiven. I pray that would happen today, right now. And Lord, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters who are in Christ. Lord, drive us from our sin. Make nothing uglier to us than our sin. And help us Know the joy of repentance and forgiveness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.